Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We know that you have promised that it will not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which you've given it. And so we pray, Lord, that your word might accomplish its purpose in us and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 4. Uh, This has been regarded as one of the more challenging passages in the letter. I don't know if you picked up on that as I was reading it. Sometimes a text of Scripture is challenging because at first glance, we don't, we don't really know what the, the author is getting at. We, we have a hard time getting to what the point of the passage is. But this passage isn't challenging because Paul's point is unclear. His conclusion is clear enough in the, the final verses of this passage in Galatians 4.31 and 5.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. For it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He wants his readers to know that in Christ, they are free from the law. In fact, Christ set them free so that they could live in that freedom. Therefore, they are to take their stand on the gospel and not allow anyone to steal their freedom by placing them back under slavery to the law, which is exactly what the false teachers in Galatians were trying to do. That's the thrust of Paul's argument. What's more challenging about this passage is not what the point is, but rather how Paul makes it, how what he says supports and leads to this conclusion. He's arguing again from from Scripture for the superiority of of the gospel to the law, but he's doing it in a bit of a different way here. He's not arguing by means of maybe strict biblical interpretation. He's arguing by biblical illustration, what he calls figurative interpretation. Some translations may say allegory. It's actually just the Greek word there, allegory. Now, that may make some of us a bit uncomfortable because when we hear allegory, we immediately think it means the opposite of reading the Bible literally. Quick side note. The meaning of the word literally has become quite elastic in common usage. In fact, ironically, we actually tend more often to use the word literally to mean figuratively. Like, I went to the mall and there were literally a billion people there. No, there weren't. One-eighth of the world's population was not at the mall. You mean there were, uh, you don't mean there were actually a billion people there. You mean there was just a lot of people there. But that's not literal, that's figurative. Right, you follow? So rather than saying that we need to take the Bible literally, it may be better to say that we need to take the Bible seriously and on its own terms. I think that might fit closer to what we mean when we say taking the Bible literally, and it saves us from being backed into a corner of interpreting in an overly literal way. The Bible itself tells us that there are some things that we ought to take figuratively. 
Whatever we call this conviction for how we read and interpret Scripture, it's often regarded as the polar opposite of reading allegorically or figuratively. But that's precisely what Paul says he's doing here. Before we accuse one of the authors of Scripture of reading Scripture incorrectly because obviously we know better, we need to be clear on what he's actually doing. There's a way of reading the Bible figuratively or or allegorically that takes the words of a passage and and rips the, the historical and literary meaning out of them and replaces it with some kind of spiritual meaning. So rather than reading meaning out of the Scriptures, we read our own meaning into them. Rather than exposition, exposing what is there, we do imposition imposing something on the text that's foreign to it. So that's not a good way to read anything, let alone the Word of God. But that's not what Paul is doing here. What he's doing is something more like employing the story as a a parable to explain his point more vividly. He's not using this story merely because it has convenient language and characters so that he can lift it for his own purpose. He rightly sees this story as an example of a larger pattern in Scripture. He's not reading strange details into the passage, but rather reading this story uh, with the grain of the Bible and extrapolating from it to this larger framework that runs throughout Scripture and explains what's going on in Galatia. And that framework is this. There are and always have been only two ways to live, two competing ways of relating to God, what Paul calls two covenants. And these two ways result in two vastly different destinies for those who take them. Freedom and slavery. Through faith in Christ, Christians have been freed from sin's penalty and dominion and are under the saving reign of grace. And any attempt to mix the law back in with the gospel corrupts the gospel and leads back to slavery. So he exhorts his readers to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel, sort of like the revolutionaries in Les Mis singing the music of a people who will not be slaves again. I thought about singing it, but then I didn't want to subject you to that. How does he make this argument? He does so in, in three steps. Verses 21 to 23, he introduces this illustration. In verses 24 to 27, he explains the illustration. And in verse, uh, verses 28 through chapter 5, verse 1, he applies the illustration to his readers and to us, right? The illustration introduced, explained, and applied. That's how we're going to track with this passage this morning. There's a lot here. And we're reminded that we are called to love God, not only with all our hearts, but with all our minds. So put your thinking caps on as we walk through what Paul is saying here. First, Paul introduces his illustration. He begins with this rhetorical question to to draw his readers in. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law 
says. It's because of these troublemaking false teachers in Galatia, the Galatians seem all too ready to place themselves under the law, to rely on their obedience to God's commands to attain and maintain their standing of righteousness before God. So again, Paul goes to the Scriptures, to the law itself, to demonstrate that not only are they wrong, but in fact the exact opposite is true. Now he did this before with the example of Abraham, right? Chapter 3, Abraham's not justified by works, he's justified by faith. And now he's going to do the same thing with an example of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. This is him laying out the the illustration, the story that then he's going to read out of all of these these biblical truths that, that shape all of Scripture. Now, we read parts of this story earlier from the book of Genesis. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, by two women, Hagar, his slave, and Sarah, his wife. Ishmael, Hagar's son, was born... Paul says, according to the flesh. And that doesn't mean that he was just, just born as a result of sexual immorality, though that's true. Abraham and Sarah sinfully manipulated the situation to get Abraham to conceive a son through this illicit relationship with his slave Hagar. And it's a side note, sometimes we read the Bible, we find things like that, and we think, how could, how could Abraham do something like that? Or how could David do something like that? As if we're expecting that uh, everybody in the Bible is going to be perfect and sinless. There's only one of those people. His name is Jesus. Everybody else is a sinner. We're thinking, well, does the fact that Abraham did this mean that God's okay with it? But if you go back and you look at examples like Abraham and Moses and David and others, when they do things that are morally wrong, you end up seeing that the result is never good. Things always go bad. But being born according to the flesh does not only mean that he was born as the result of this sexually immoral relationship. More than that, Ishmael's birth was according to the flesh because it represented Abraham's attempt to get God's blessing by his own works. Abraham and Sarah were scheming to achieve God's blessing through their own ingenuity and efforts, working out of the flesh. They didn't trust that God was going to provide a son through Sarah, so they decided that they needed to help God out. And in... This is the case when we decide to do things our own way instead of God's ways. Things didn't go great. But the situation was altogether different with Isaac. His birth was not the result of sinful scheming, but rather was the supernatural fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would have an heir through Sarah. 
Not only did God determine to make Abraham the father of many nations, he determined that Sarah would likewise be the mother of many nations. Isaac's birth was the result of the divine promise. His conception was miraculous given the advanced age of his parents. The book of Romans, Paul sort of makes a joke saying that God was faithful to his promise and Isaac was born to Abraham, though he was good as dead. I'm sure that Abraham approved of that. Given the advanced age of his parents, Isaac's birth could only be explained by God's supernatural intervention to accomplish his purpose and fulfill his promise. Now, you may be thinking, great, but what does all this have to do with the Galatians and being under the law? So now after introducing this illustration, Paul goes on to explain it. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. It makes it clear that he's using this as a story to illustrate a larger point. The story of, of Hagar and Sarah and their sons is not only history, it is that, but it's also an example of a pattern that we see throughout the Bible, a pattern, a framework of how people relate to God. Hagar, the slave woman, and Sarah, the free woman, illustrate the reality that there are and always have been these two different competing ways of relating to God, what Paul calls covenants, structures that, that arrange and order and govern the relationship between God and humanity. And everyone who has ever lived has lived and died under one of these two covenants. The nature of these covenants and their differences is exemplified by the story of Hagar and Sarah. So, what are these two covenants? Verse 24 again. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So here he's talking about the law of Moses. But of course, it's not that the law of Moses itself is bad. It's not at all. We've said this before. The, the problem is not the law. The law is an expression of God's holy and righteous and good character. The problem is how we rely on the works of the law for righteousness, treating the law as if it's a covenant arrangement intended to bring us life. It's humanity's use of the law that is the real problem. And when we use it for something it was never designed to do, it would be like trying to shave with a chainsaw. We shouldn't be surprised when the results are less than ideal. This is one way to attempt to relate to God, to seek righteousness before Him by relying on human effort. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is precisely what Paul's opponents are trying to do, saying that you need to rely on the law in order to be blessed. Do this and live. This is the natural state that all people since Adam and Eve have been born into, born under the law, subject to its requirements as a covenant based on works. Do this and live. 
And the result is no surprise. We've seen it before in Galatians that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because they cannot fulfill its demands. And as a result, the law does not bring freedom, but only slavery. It only reveals the fact that we are imprisoned to our sin. It reveals our corruption and condemnation and alienation and inability, but it cannot save. That's why we can say that this covenant bears children who are to be slaves. And in this sense, Hagar is representative of that law covenant or covenant of works. Just as Ishmael was born as a result of trying to attain God's blessing through human works, so too relying on the law for righteousness and life is attempting to achieve God's blessing through human works rather than receiving it by God's promise. (coughs) Excuse me. So how does this fit with the circumstances that Paul's readers are in? Verse 25, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she, Jerusalem, is in slavery with her children. This is where we really need to try to keep up with Paul. It seems like he keeps moving the reference point. We've just caught up to him. Okay, Hagar represents, represents the law. He says, now, Hagar is actually Jerusalem, like Paul. Slow down. This is what he means. Those who are under this enslaving law covenant relating to God on the basis of their works, those who are seeking righteousness and life through what they do, is found in spades in what Paul calls the present city of Jerusalem, which seems to mean Jews who continue to reject Christ and cling to the law, but more extensively refers to anyone who attempts to relate to God on the basis of their works. They don't realize, as Paul says in Romans 10, that Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, not who does. And this would come as quite a shock and offense to Paul's opponents who would have considered themselves in the line of Isaac, children of promise, because of their obedience to the law. That's what made them heirs of the promise. That isn't so, because the law cannot and and does not secure God's promised blessing. It can't free, it can't give life, it can't justify. We learned this in Galatians 3, the law is like an x-ray that reveals a fracture but cannot heal it. Those who rely on works for their right standing with God are like someone who has a broken leg who thinks that it will be healed by shooting x-rays at it every day. Not only will that not heal the broken leg, the constant exposure to radiation will slowly begin to poison you and unchecked it will eventually kill you. So it is with those who remain enslaved under the law. And Paul then contrasts this covenant of works that leads to death, represented by Hagar, to the covenant that's represented by Sarah. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Now Paul here moves right from speaking about the present Jerusalem, those enslaved under the law, to the Jerusalem 
above. We'll come back to what that means in a moment. With the previous covenant, he walked through the illustration. Hagar corresponds to Mount Sinai and the law corresponds to the present Jerusalem. But here he's, he's skipped right to the Jerusalem above. He skipped the first couple steps in the illustration, leaving us to fill in the blanks for the rest. But, but if we've been tracking with him, we have enough of the pieces to put this puzzle together. Hagar, the slave woman, and her son represent the enslaving covenant of works, humanity's vain attempts to achieve God's blessing through their own effort. Sarah, the free woman, and her son represent this liberating covenant of grace, God's free grant of his blessings and favor to those who do not rely on their works but on his promise. Whereas this covenant of works comes from Mount Sinai where the the law was given, this new covenant, this covenant of grace comes from a different mountain, Calvary. This new covenant promises righteousness in life not as rewards that we have merited through our perfect obedience, but as gracious gifts that, that Christ has merited for us through his perfect obedience in our place. Those who are under this covenant are children of the Jerusalem Above. Okay. So what's the Jerusalem above? We'll put it simply, it's a way that Scripture describes the, the future restoration of God's creation and people. We see it at the end of the book of Revelation in the new heavens and new earth, when what comes down to be the renewed and restored dwelling place of God with his people the new Jerusalem. According to the New Testament, this coming city, this coming new creation, this coming kingdom has in some sense already begun with the church, God's new people. We who follow Jesus have already become citizens of this new city, this heavenly Jerusalem. The church now is an embassy of that city and that kingdom. And while we're not there yet, we're still pilgrims on this narrow way. We long, as the author of Hebrews puts it, for a better country, a heavenly one. Because here we have no enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And though we're exiles now, we live as those who are free in the midst of a world that's enslaved to sin. We're citizens of the new city while we dwell as exiles in the old. So we're like an embassy in a country ruled by a totalitarian dictator who oppresses and enslaves his people. And we are an oasis, a haven, a refuge of freedom. And within our precincts, we are not under the dominion of sin, but the gracious reign of Christ. And we invite all who will come to find asylum and refuge and liberty under the banner of the cross while we wait for the coming king and the final liberation. Then Paul quotes from Isaiah 54 to confirm his point. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. For you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. 
Now, as if Paul wasn't being confusing enough, he now introduces another verse of Scripture that is supporting his point. And this could constitute a sermon all, all its own. What is Paul doing with Isaiah 54 to support his point? Because it's, it's complex, I just want to touch on it briefly. Paul seems to be using this verse to refer the reader to the wider context of Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 54, it's prophesying that God is fulfilling his gracious covenant with Abraham by a final restoration of Israel from exile and expanding Israel to include the Gentiles within the scope of his covenant blessing. There's much more that we could say there, but he's, he's referring to this text to show how God is fulfilling his covenant with Abraham that came through the barren woman, Sarah, and her son, Isaac, and how he's doing that through not just Israel, but Jews and Gentiles together in this new body, the church, and that how this is not being fulfilled by means of the law, but by the accomplishment of God's promise. Okay, that's a lot, so let's summarize briefly. The gist of Paul's illustration is that there are and always have been only two ways to live before God. The first is represented by Hagar. It's the way of relying on human works, but ultimately it only produces slaves. It's like one of those finger traps. The harder you try, the tighter the trap becomes. The more you rely on the law and the harder you try to obey, the more tightly the bonds of slavery become. The second way is represented by Sarah. It's the way of giving up reliance on human works and relying wholly on God's promises. It's this reliance upon grace, not works, that leads to true freedom. So the law itself actually teaches that seeking righteousness before God through human effort results in slavery, whereas seeking righteousness through faith in God's promise results in freedom Therefore, the law itself teaches you not to place yourself under the law as a means of attaining God's favor. And in saying this, Paul cuts the legs out from beneath his opponent's arguments. Now, in the remaining verses, he's going to apply this illustration to his readers. Verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise tells the Galatians that in this illustration, they are not like Ishmael. They are not children born into slavery. They are like Isaac. He repeats the same conclusion in verse 31. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. But here it's even more personal. You, Galatians, my brothers and sisters, you are children of promise. You won't become children of God and heirs of the blessings promised only after you become sufficiently obedient to the law. That's what they are telling you, but that's not what the law itself says. 
You are children of promise now, apart from any works of the law. Regardless of what the false teachers claim, it's those who are under grace and not the law that are heirs of God's promise. And then he begins to draw out the implications of these truths for the Galatians and for us. First, we shouldn't be surprised that those who are under grace are persecuted by those who are under the law. We shouldn't be surprised that those under grace are persecuted by those under the law. Good verse 29. At that time, the son, born according to the flesh, persecuted the son by the power, uh, born by the power of the Spirit. And it's the same now. He reminds them of what happens in the story of Hagar and Sarah, as we read it earlier. Ishmael, the son of the flesh, mocked Isaac, the son of the promise. And as it was then, so it is now. Those who are living under the law and in reliance on their works, malign those who are living under the reign of grace. But why is that? Think of the situation with Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac's birth meant that he was the heir. Abraham's blessing and God's covenant would run through him, not Ishmael. Isaac's very existence was a tangible reminder that Ishmael was not the promised son and would not be Abraham's heir. And so in Paul's day, and in the 2,000 years since, up to today, those who are under God's covenant of grace through faith in Christ are opposed and oppressed by those who remain under the law. Because our mere existence and presence testifies to them and reminds them that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That despite how they feel and how they live, they are not actually free, but are slaves. It's not that they are angry because we are free and they are slaves and we're laughing at them saying, ha ha ha, we're free. You're not. Too bad for you. The offer of grace and freedom stands open to them. There's no citizenship test, no lengthy immigration pathway or visa approval process for the heavenly Jerusalem. Christ receives all who come to him freely. But it requires something of them that they are as yet unwilling to surrender. Their pride, self-sufficiency, Self-reliance, autonomy, their authority to determine what is right and wrong for themselves. In short, they have to surrender their determination to relate to God on their own terms and come to him on his terms, that is, through Christ. But this they are unwilling to do. And so those who are under the law rail against those who are under grace because, as Jesus himself said, we testify to them that their deeds are evil. We remind them that although they think they are free, that's just an illusion. And that is infuriating. And this fury can take many different forms. In some places and at some times, it takes the form of physical persecution, violence, martyrdom of Christians. 
In other times and places, it looks more like being ostracized socially and culturally, considered perpetual outsiders because we refuse to conform to the pattern of the world. More personally, it may take the form of being ridiculed by family and friends because of your convictions. I find it interesting that there are some Christians who seem so shocked when they are not celebrated by the world around them. We tend to think that Christians should be far more respected and embraced and valued by the rest of the world. I saw a a Barna statistic recently that said in 2022, Christians accounted for 70% of American charitable donations. In fact, in 2022, Christians and Christian organizations outgave the federal government in addressing the issue of global poverty. And yet, biblical Christianity is not celebrated by our culture. It's rather the object of scorn and ridicule. Why? In part, for those who are under grace, even our love and generosity testifies to the spiritual bankruptcy of those who are under the law and alienated from God. We live in this strange tension. All people will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we love one another, and if we love one another, they will hate us for it. Jesus reminds us, if they hate you, they hated me first. So friends, as a general encouragement, I think we ought to stop whining about when we're not popular and beloved by society. Paul says these things should not surprise us or lead us to panic or fear as if somehow now the gates of hell will prevail against the church because we're not lauded by the world. We were never promised that. In fact, quite the opposite. And we're not special in this, and neither were the Galatians. This has always been the case for God's faithful people. So second, we need to remember that human effort will not lead to God's blessing or our works don't earn or secure or or keep our inheritance. In light of the, the opposition that Christians will face simply for being Christians, it might be tempting for us to to drift back into living under the law and relying on our work, especially if it prevents us from being the objects of scorn and ridicule. In fact, this is what Paul will go on to say that his opponents are actually doing. In Galatians 6, it says they are trying to compel you to be circumcised, to follow the law, to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's easier to identify when it looks like a complete abandonment of biblical Christianity and turning to something altogether different. But what is subtle and more deceitful and thus more dangerous is when we begin to think and act like we are under slavery to the law, though we would confess with our mouths that we are under grace. Our our formal theology remains the same, but our functional theology does a factory reset and goes back to its original settings. We say, yes, of course, we're saved by grace through faith, but then we go about our days as if our standing with God is actually based on whether or not we've kept a particular list of do's and don'ts. And as we've talked about before, we begin to think that the gospel is Jesus plus and not Jesus 
only. The Galatians themselves are beginning to drift into this, not, not entirely abandoning Christ, that would be too obvious, but rather being tempted to add the law to the gospel, to rely on Christ plus the law, to seek salvation by grace plus works. The false teachers were likely making it seem like a very little shift. When it comes to getting the gospel right, what might seem like a little deviation is actually incredibly significant. It'd be a bit like programming a rocket to go to Mars. I guess there's a rocket launch tomorrow somewhere in Virginia that we might be able to see. I don't think it's going to Mars, but pretend it was. You're programming a rocket to go to Mars and being off just a fraction of a degree in its trajectory. It might seem like only a minor change, nothing more than a rounding error, and imperceptible when it's launched. It won't look any different. But even if it's a fraction of a degree off, you know where that rocket's not going to end up? Mars. It will be millions of miles from its intended destination. So Paul points out that what might at first seem like only a little shift actually has massive implications. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Only those who are free through Christ share in God's blessing. Being under the law means nothing but slavery and condemnation. And so Paul is drawing out the consequences here of what it would mean to submit to living under the law. The law itself that they are so eager to be under says the slave does not share in the inheritance of the son. To return to the law, to add the law to the gospel would be as foolish as it would be for the prodigal son after he returned to his father and has father had received him with extravagant grace, it would be as foolish for the son to continue to try to earn back his father's favor, which he already has, or repay his debt, which has already been forgiven, and to do so not by living as a treasured son, but as one of his father's servants. It's absurd, but it's so easy to fall into because we're so naturally programmed to operate according to merit and earning and effort. We are so easily drawn to live as one of God's servants and not as sons. And so we need Paul's final exhortation here, that as those who are free, we must stand firm in that gospel liberty and refuse to yield any ground to it to the enslaving power of the law. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It was for the sake of this living and enjoying gospel freedom, freedom from the commanding and condemning and enslaving power of the law that Christ liberated us in the first place. He didn't come to establish a new law that just replaces the old one, that just changes the obligations that we have to fulfill in order to earn righteousness. It's not just a new and improved form of slavery with new commands that we could never obey. Faith is not a work. 
Faith is not the new law that we have to believe well enough before we're forgiven. Faith is merely what we do to receive the promise freely offered to us. Christ didn't establish a new law. No, Christ fulfilled the law for us because we never could. So he freed us from the obligation to earn righteousness by obeying it. Christ paid the law's penalty, bore the law's curse due to us for our sin, and so set us free from our obligation to pay that debt on our own. Having been freed by Christ and made alive by the Spirit, the righteous requirement of the law is written on our hearts so that we might serve God, Paul says in Romans 7, not in the old way of the law, but in the new way of the Spirit from the inside out. And so Paul's exhortation to the Galatians and to us is to Stand firm. You are free. No one can make you a slave to the law anymore. Take your stand upon the free grace of the gospel. This means when someone comes to demand of you something that Scripture doesn't demand, don't give in. When you hear that in order to become a Christian or stay a Christian or to be a faithful Christian, you have to do this or that or refrain from this or that, don't don't allow anyone to bind your conscience with something that God's Word does not command. Conversely, it means that we should be careful not to demand something of others that's not clearly commanded in Scripture. And we do this when we say things like, faithful Christians only choose this type of schooling for their kids. Faithful Christians don't spend their money like this. Faithful Christians only dress this way in church. Faithful Christians never go to these places or do these things. It's just another way of saying that we're saved by Jesus plus following whatever commands we happen to decide are important. And we're quite selective. The thing is, when we do this, we're not just imposing a new law on others. We are denying the sufficiency of the work of Christ to justify us. and showing that we don't really understand the gospel. It shows that we, though we are justified by faith, are still operating as those who are under the law. But that's not who you are anymore. Christian, you are a citizen of a new city. You're under grace, not law. Stand firm in it. Don't give any foothold to the thought that you can contribute to your salvation through obedience to the law. Drive out that false gospel with liberating power of the true gospel. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that though we are not deserving of the liberating power of the gospel that you in your grace have freed us. Oh God, impress this on our hearts. Help us to live as those who are free because we are not under the law but under grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song together?